If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. There we go. There are the lights. Uh, and as you turn, I want to say a word of welcome to you if you're here uh, in the well or upstairs in the well cafe. Uh, my name is David. I serve as one of the pastors here. And I especially want to welcome you if this is your first time here with us at First Methodist Mansfield. Uh, this is the fifth uh, week in a six-week series, in a six-week season, we, wa- we walk through each and every year called the season of Lent. And we have talked about in recent weeks that Lent is a time when we think about the cross. We think about the sacrifice of Jesus. We think about the grace that has been made available to us in that act. And we prepare ourselves for the celebration of Easter, which is now only, only a few weeks away. We've been doing that in a very unique series this year as we've been walking through this series, Discovering the Holy Land. I just got back from my first trip there, and I have really enjoyed the last few weeks being able to share with you uh, five of, or previously four locations that we got to see. Today we'll go to our fifth, and then we have one more location we'll do next week in this series, and then I'll share a few more things with you uh, Easter weekend. Uh, but I want to show you first uh, some people that you need to express thanks to. Uh, this first picture is a picture of our video team and me, so don't say thank you to me. I'm, I'm there in my nice cool hat there. But um, uh, on the, the left is, is Zach Stewart, uh, who uh, was one of our videographers. Uh, next to him is Carter Rose, uh, who is an incredible wedding photographer out of Dallas, who we hired to come with us on this trip. Uh, and then Savannah Vasquez is there on, on the right. Uh, she's one of our own. Uh, in fact, when we were leaving the Israeli airport, they have pretty tight security there, in case you don't know. Uh, the, Savannah was at the end of the line, and the agent came up to me, and he, and he said, how long have you known this girl? You know, because it's pretty tight security again. I was like, well, I've known her since she was 11, so I think she's safe. But she grew up in our church, uh, one of our other videographers. And these are the ones who captured the images that you've been able to see as we've worked through this series. So uh, these are the people that you owe a thank you to. And we appreciate their work. Uh, So far in this series, here's what we've done. We've gone to the Jordan River, uh, to the place where Jesus was baptized. I think we're going to go to the map next. And then we've gone to the wilderness area just outside Jericho. You see Jericho there in the southern end of the Holy Land. We went north a few weeks ago to the Sea of Galilee there in the north. Uh, Capernaum was the city where Jesus lived during the course of his public ministry that was around the Sea of Galilee. Jesus spent most of that time there around the Sea of Galilee. We went to the hillside where Jesus shared the, the Sermon on the Mount. We went on to the lake, onto the Sea of Galilee last week, remembering the time that Jesus shared there with his disciples as well as the miracles that he performed there. Today we are going to come south to the city of Jerusalem the holy city, the center uh, of the world's three major faiths. You heard that in the opening video. And we're going to talk a little bit about why Jesus comes to Jerusalem at this particular time. So again, we've been throughout many areas of the Holy Land. We spent a lot of time in the north, two weeks in the north, because again, Jesus spent most of his public ministry there around the Sea of Galilee. But near the end of his life, Jesus comes south to the city of Jerusalem. And before I show you some imagery from Jerusalem, I want to talk about why. Why does Jesus come to Jerusalem at this particular time in his life? 
Now, Jesus, uh, what, what the scriptures tell us, John 10, for instance, talks about why Jesus comes and why Jesus has come here to the world. Jesus talks about himself and talks about his ministry, his life, his identity in this way in John 10. He talks about him being like a good shepherd. And he says, a good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And in that section, John 10, verse 18, Jesus says this, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord, referring to his life. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. That's how John talks about Jesus as he makes this movement towards Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 9, after Jesus predicts for his disciples his own arrest and death, he says this to them. He says, as the time, or Luke tells us, as the time approached for him, Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. The little translation there is that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. So he spent three years in the north sharing in his public ministry, sharing with the crowds who have come out in the thousands to hear him preach. He's healed, he's taught, and now he sets his face towards Jerusalem. And he comes to Jerusalem for the specific purpose of laying down his life. Again, remember the words of John. No one takes the life of Jesus from him. He comes to lay his life down. Down. That's where this story is heading. I want, what, what I want you to know as we move towards Jerusalem is that Jesus knew that this is where the story was heading. Now, Jesus comes to Jerusalem at a very important time. He comes to Jerusalem during the celebration of Passover. And Passover was one of those moments in the year when Jews from throughout the, the land of Israel would have come to Jerusalem for the sake of celebrating Passover. Passover was a remembrance of how God had delivered the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And so in the thousands, they would have come to Jerusalem to share an offering at the temple, to remember Passover, to remember God setting the people free. They would have come in the thousands to the holy city to mark that moment in their shared history. Now alongside these Jews that would have come, again, from throughout the Holy Land, to the city of Jerusalem, soldiers also came with them. Roman soldiers and their leaders came with them to the city of Jerusalem because as the population swelled and Jews came together to celebrate their freedom, there was this tension present within this community as they realized that they weren't, in fact, at that time, free. They were living under Roman occupation. And so alongside the pilgrims who came to Jerusalem, soldiers came, many of them from the city of Caesarea, which was located on the Mediterranean Sea, a city that Herod built in honor of the Roman Caesar. Soldiers would have come, and alongside those soldiers came the Roman governor in that area, whose name was Pontius Pilate. Now, you may recognize that name because it comes up in the Gospels. Jesus was, convi- was condemned to death by Pontius Pilate, the Roman leader, the only one who had the authority to condemn Jesus to the death, uh, death by crucifixion. So Jesus comes to Jerusalem for the expressed purpose of laying down his life. 
He comes to Jerusalem alongside many other Jews, many other pilgrims who would have come for the celebration of Passover. He comes to Jerusalem alongside the soldiers who are coming to maintain control and order while the city population swells and they celebrate their freedom from the past. And he comes at a time when the only person who had the authority to condemn him to death happened to be in Jerusalem. Pilate lived in Caesarea, but during this week, he is in Jerusalem again to maintain order and control while the people celebrate this moment from their past when God intervened and set them free. So with that introduction, let me show you some images from Jerusalem. The first thing that you're going to see here uh, is the vantage point from the Mount of Olives. I'll read you the text uh, about Jesus coming down the Mount of Olives in just a moment. What you see there is the Temple Mount structure. The gold dome in the center uh, is the Dome of the Rock, a Muslim sacred site. And what you see here is the graveyard that fills the Mount of Olives. I'll show you another picture in just a moment that gives you a sense of the size of this graveyard. Jews who are, who are buried there for the sake that when they are resurrected, they want to be resurrected in front of the temple. So there you get a sense of the valley that separates the Mount of Olives from the Temple Mount structure. This is about halfway down uh, the Mount of Olives. Again, you see the Dome of the Rock there. The Dome of the Rock gives you a good sense of where the temple would have been at the time that Jesus entered into the city. This is the road that leads down the Mount of Olives uh, into the city. This is coming up uh, into the old city of Jerusalem. You're going to see one of the eight gates that leads into the old city. This is the Lion's Gate. You see the lions there on the side there. This is not the gate that Jesus used to enter the old city, but gives you a sense of what it might have looked like. This is the Western Wall. Uh, where Jews come to pray uh, at the Western Wall. This wall predates the time of Jesus. It was a wall that was constructed by Herod that expanded the size of the Temple Mount, the courtyard that surrounded the temple on top. And again, Jews come there to pray. People of other faiths come as well, write their prayers and, and place them in the wall there at the Western Wall, which is also known as the Wailing Wall. The next thing that you're going to see, if I remember correctly, uh, is the front of the temple. These are the steps that would have led into the courtyard that surrounded the temple. Uh, these are also called the teaching steps because this is one of the places where Jesus came to teach the people. Uh, this place, probably more than any other place that you visit in Jerusalem, has, has incredible meaning because you know with absolute certainty that you are standing, you are walking on steps where Jesus walked. Again, these were the steps that would have led into the temple area and the courtyard that surrounded the temple. Go ahead and go to the first picture. I want to show you a couple of pictures to give you a sense of where things are located But before I read to you the scripture. If you look to your far left, that is the western wall. So kind of up on that second level is that place that you saw earlier where Jews come uh, to pray at the western wall. We are facing the front here. The temple steps are just on the other side of that rock uh, structure there. And then in the background, what you see is the Mount of Olives. Next picture gives you a little bit tighter shot of that. Again, you'll see the Mount of Olives to your far right. This is the front of the temple. The next picture, I think, is the temple steps. This is Savannah uh, standing there on the temple steps. And it gives you a sense of where Jesus would have stood as he shared with the people. He had the Mount of Olives to his left and the people there before him. The next picture shows you or gives you a sense of the size of the graveyard 
that, that covers the entire Mount of Olives. It also gives you a sense of how important tourism is to Israel today. <laughs> and then the final picture that I want you just to leave up. This is the top of the Mount of Olives, the place where Jesus would have started his journey into the city. And so with this image there before you, I want to read to you from Luke 19. Here's what it says. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, these are two cities that are on the other side of the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden, and untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the, Lord's, the, the Lord needs it. Verse 37, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple... He began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. So again, we said from the gospel's perspective, what Luke and John tell us is that Jesus has come to the holy city of Jerusalem for the purpose of laying down his life. He's come with pilgrims and soldiers. The population would have swelled and everyone would have been on edge, wondering what might happen during the celebration of the Passover. And what Jesus does when he enters into the city in order to break the ice and make everyone feel very, very comfortable is he goes into the temple and starts turning tables over, causing a massive scene in the temple. And you have to imagine that if you were one of those disciples who entered into Jerusalem with him, if you were one of those who, who shouted Hosanna, who said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, if you were one of those who had seen Jesus entering the city in the way that he did and doing what he did in the temple at that time, you would have thought this man was either crazy, wanting to get himself killed, or He was about to fulfill the hopes and dreams of the people by leading them in a revolt against the Roman authority. So the question is, which is it? What has Jesus come to Jerusalem to do? Now, if you go back into the text that I just read to you, to to verse 37, you have a sense of what the crowd hoped that Jesus would do. As he enters, they say to him, they they praise him saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. King was a loaded word at the time because there already was a king, King Herod. But they are saying, no, 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 this is the king. 
This is the guy who is entering into the city as a conquering king to lead us in the revolt that we have been waiting for and hoping for. This is the guy who has come to clean up the mess that we have been living in for generations. That's what the people wanted. They wanted a a savior to come, but not a savior like we might think of Jesus today. A savior who would come, who would lead them in a revolution where they would throw off this powerful, uh, this powerful authority, the Romans who had come in and taken their land and, and ruled over them for, for generations. Their hope was that Jesus would save them from the political and social situation that they found him, themselves in. But the question is, why did Jesus come? Why is Jesus coming to the city of Jerusalem? Why is Jesus coming during the Passover? Why is Jesus in the city at the only time that that the person is there who would condemn him to his death? Why does Jesus come? Look at verse 41. Jesus comes not responding to the cheers as we might expect a conquering king to. Jesus comes and he pauses as he makes his way down the Mount of Olives and, and he sees this picture he, he sees the picture of, of the city of Jerusalem. And while the crowds are cheering, Jesus is weeping. And what Luke tells us is that Jesus weeps for several reasons. He weeps first because he recognizes that the people at this time did not understand what would lead them to peace. Not revolution. Not an outbreak of war and violence, but they did not understand what would lead them to peace. Jesus weeps because he knows what's next in the story for himself. He knows that the people who lined the roads cheering him and shouting his name, singing his praise in just a short number of days will be the same people who reject him as the Messiah. Jesus knows what is going to happen in the history of Jerusalem. If you jump forward to 70 AD, the structure that sat on top of the Temple Mount, the temple that was thought to be the literal dwelling place of God, the Romans would come when the revolt finally happened. And the Romans would burn down that temple. And they would destroy the city of Jerusalem. And the prophecy that Jesus shares here in verse 41, this this section in Luke 19, when he talks about stones being cast down, this prophecy would be fulfilled in less than 30 years. When the revolution did happen, and the mighty arm of Rome came in and crushed the Jews who stood against Rome. The crowds are cheering, and Jesus is weeping. The crowds are cheering, and Jesus is weeping. So about six weeks ago, I was laying out this entire series. Uh, We had a sense of where we were going to go and what we were going to see and and what we were going to capture, the locations that we wanted to take you to, how we wanted to to share with you this this imagery from from Jerusalem. And and we had the text that we were going to preach from, Luke 19, this this entry into Jerusalem. And that phrase that I just shared with you was the phrase that I wrote down on 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 my piece of paper. The crowds are cheering and Jesus is weeping. 
Crowds are cheering and Jesus is weeping. I didn't really know where that was going six weeks ago when I wrote that down, but that's what, that's what jumped out at me when I read the text. That this, this, there's this dramatic difference in the response. There is cheering and excitement and exhilaration at what might happen, great anticipation of what this may mean, that this man is entering into the city, and then there's Jesus who's weeping. He's weeping, a heart broken for the people and for this, for this holy city. The crowds are cheering and Jesus is weeping. And the question is why? Why is there such a dramatic difference between the way the people respond to this moment and the way that Jesus responds? And, and this week, this is the thought that hit me. It's different because Jesus sees what they cannot see. Jesus sees what they cannot see. He knows what's going to happen. He knows where this story is heading. He knows that their cheers will turn into rejection. He knows that within a generation, this city will experience incredible destruction. He, he knows that even now, as they cheer him, they don't understand what will lead them to peace. He sees what they cannot see. And so while they are cheering, he is weeping. Because Jesus sees what they cannot see. Which to me raises this question. How would my life, how would our lives be different if we could see what Jesus sees? How would life be different if you could see what Jesus sees? If tomorrow morning when you wake up and you walk into the bathroom and you look yourself in the mirror and you take in what you see there, how would that experience change if you could see what Jesus sees? As you prepared to have your first conversation of the day with whoever it was, someone in your family or someone at work, how would your approach to that interaction change if you could see what Jesus sees? How might we change the way that we invest our life, the way that we spend our days if we could see what Jesus sees? What would be different about your life if you had the same vision that Jesus had? If your heart was more like his heart, if your mind was more like his mind, if your eyes could see what Jesus could see, how, how would your life be different? And so what I did in preparation for this message is just to sit back and ask myself that question. David, what would be different? about your life if you could see what Jesus sees. Now, now these are my answers. Yours, your, yours may be different, but, but, but here's what I came up with this week. That first, I would have more grace with myself because I would know how deeply loved I am by God if I could see what Jesus sees. I would have an increased sense of security in myself and would therefore think more easily and quickly about the needs of others if I could see what Jesus could see. I would give less attention to completing tasks and more attention to loving people if I could see what Jesus sees. I would smile and laugh and cry much more easily and frequently than I do now if I could see what Jesus sees. This one may not be yours, but I know it's for me. I would feel a fresh wave of energy in my life because I would no longer be wasting energy on those things that cause me anxiety in my life if I could see what Jesus sees. 
I would more freely give and sacrifice what I have because I would have a clear understanding of how, how deeply I can trust God to give me what I need. And I would have a clear understanding of where my abundance might meet someone else in their need. I would be more patient with those around me, recognizing that everyone is doing the best that they can and dealing with much more than I can, I can fully appreciate if I could see what Jesus sees. I would embrace suffering and setback and failure because I would see how they are enabling me to become a better person and live more like Jesus. This next one was the one that came easiest to me but was the hardest to write down and even harder to share, to be quite honest with you. I wouldn't spend near as much time feeling afraid if I could see what Jesus sees. I would know when to speak and when to listen And when to simply embrace silence as a way of connecting God's spirit at work in my life if I could see what Jesus sees. I would no longer waste my time or my energy or my money on things that don't matter if I could see what Jesus sees. I would more quickly ask others for help because seeing what Jesus can see would help me deal with the pride that might prevent me from asking for for that help. I would be a better husband I would be a better father. I would be a better pastor. I would be a better human being if I could see what Jesus sees. What about you? What would be different? How would your relationships change? How would the way in which you are spending your life change if you could see what Jesus sees? Would it lead to more smiles or would it lead to more tears? Would it lead to a greater sense of love and sacrifice? How would your life change if you could see what Jesus sees? I'd encourage you to ask yourself the question, to spend 30 minutes this week, spend some time in isolation, some time in solitude, get out a pen and a paper and just ask yourself the question, what would be different if I could see what Jesus sees? How would my relationship with my spouse or my kids or my coworkers or or my neighbor change if I could see what Jesus sees? Write it out. Verbalize for yourself what would be different if you could see what Jesus could see. And when you're done, take time to review that list. Because when you do, in in looking at that and and thinking about your evaluation of yourself, what you're going to come up with is your vision or God's vision for what your life should be. You're going to verbalize God's dreams for your life. You're going to verbalize what God hopes you will one day become, the direction your life should be heading. And the question you should ask yourself then is, am I heading in that direction? Am I moving in a direction where I more clearly see my life and my relationships and the investment of my life the way Jesus would see those things? Because that's God's dream for your life. That's God's vision for your life. So Jesus comes into the holy city. He has come here for the purpose of laying down his life. And the crowds see a savior. They see someone who is going to come and is going to fix things. Someone who's going to come in and deal with these issues that they have. They are hoping that Jesus will, will make a clean slate for them to live under. They're hoping that Jesus will be their savior, but not the savior that Jesus intended to be. 
The disciples come, the disciples who have left behind their homes and their families to follow Jesus. They had their own hopes and dreams of what would happen as Jesus entered into the city. They see Jesus in a particular way. The chief priests and the teachers of the law, those who have their power and authority because Rome has given it to them, they see Jesus as a threat. They see Jesus as someone who is coming and and someone who threatens their livelihood, the, the life that they have built for themselves. The soldiers... The soldiers see an enemy. The soldiers see someone that needs to be controlled and an enemy that may need to be squashed. But what does Jesus see? Jesus sees all of them as people who are worth dying for. That's what Jesus sees. All of them as people who are worth dying for. The same way that Jesus sees you. In the same way that Jesus sees me. So I want to invite you this week, as we come to the city of Jerusalem and we prepare to experience the Last Supper that Jesus shared with his disciples, to remember the day that he was crucified and to anticipate together the resurrection, the hope, the good news that, that finalizes this story to spend some time this week asking yourself the question, how would life be different if you could see what Jesus sees? Let's pray. Jesus, we pray this morning that you would come again into our lives and into this place that you would invade our hearts and our minds and the way we see ourselves in our lives, that we might understand a new perspective on who we are, on what we are capable of, and what our life is really all about. God, we ask for your forgiveness for the many ways in which we find ourselves distracted from what really matters in life. And so as we share together the final steps of this journey, we prepare next week, Lord, to remember those times that you prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, the way in which you prepared for for your arrest and for the crucifixion. God, help us to see what you see. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.